Hello and welcome to the City Business Festival. My name is Kojo Akoto Boating. This week we are talking about science, technology, research, innovation. And you'll be hearing from researchers, scientists, inventors, and engineers here on the City Business Festival. Our first guest for this week is Dr. Elsie Effa Kaufman. She's the president of the Ghana Biomedical Engineer Society. She's a lecturer at the University of Ghana. She's also the quiz mistress for the National Science and Mass Quiz. And we are going to talk about her work as a biomedical engineer, the various inventions that um, she's led her students and various teams to create that could make our lives better in the healthcare sector. Welcome to the City Business Festival, Doc. Thank you, Kojo. Now, if, if we say somebody is a biomedical engineer, what do you mean? What do biomedical engineers do? Uh, biomedical engineers are engineers. They are people who have been trained in engineering, and what they do is they apply their knowledge of science, mathematics, technology, and in fact, all the various types of engineering to solve problems in medicine or biology. So it's very broad. It's very broad. We use all the various types of engineering in order to address problems that arise with uh, medical service delivery uh, or even in biology. Yes. So you're an engineer who makes things in the medical and the biological field to be used to solve problems. Is, 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 is that a good description of the work you do? Yes, that's right. How long have you been doing this? Though? I can go on about uh, uh, the scope. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was trained as a biomedical engineer. I have actually got three degrees in biomedical engineering, bioengineering. So I started work after I graduated. That was in 1998 with my PhD. But before that, I was in school. I spent 10 years in school trying to get all the various degrees in bioengineering. So you, you, you had your PhD in 1998. That's right. In August 1998. So you are talking about the scope of biomedical engineering. Okay, so if you enter the hospital right now, what you will find is that the doctors may not even be able to do their work without uh, the equipment, the medical equipment, right? So the biomedical engineers are responsible, first of all, for designing the pieces of equipment you see in our hospitals, for producing them, and then for installing and then maintaining and then uh, managing them so that they, they actually deliver the service for which they were designed. So in the hospitals, if you see biomedical engineers, they are usually clinical engineers. They are called clinical engineers. And that's, in fact, the most common type of biomedical engineer you find here in Ghana. But there are also other types. I personally, for uh, example, I was trained in tissue engineering. So what I do, again, we are applying engineering to solving problems in healthcare, right? So mm-hmm. as a tissue engineer, I'm responsible for uh, problems to do with the human body, right? So the tissues of your body, if there's a problem, there's a disease, there's injury, I should be able to sit down and use my engineering skills to come up with replacement tissue uh, body parts, right? So that was what I was trained to do. But since I came to Ghana, I've been doing other things as well. Maybe we'll talk about that later. Uh, there are also engineers, biomedical engineers, who are responsible even for building the hospitals. So they would apply knowledge in, let's say, civil engineering in order to come up with a hospital building that serves a purpose. So we come up with all kinds of products. There are people who also design processes. Mm, so if you needed to find a way of delivering healthcare, some biomedical engineers would be responsible for doing that. 
there are biomedical engineers also who develop apps, you know, so they would be applying um, knowledge in software engineering to come up with apps to uh, solve all kinds of problems in healthcare. So we are, we are very, our scope is very broad. As long as the problem we are trying to solve is in healthcare or in biology, and we are applying engineering principles to these problems, then we are doing biomedical engineering. This is the City Business Festival is brought to you by APSA Bank Ghana Limited and supported by GIPC. This week we are talking about innovation in Ghana and our guest today is the president of the Ghana Biomedical Society. She's a lecturer at the University of Ghana. She's the quiz mistress for the National Science and Maths Quiz. Her name is Dr. Elsie Efra Kaufman. Now, Doc, tell me about your academic journey. How did it all start for you? Well, I, I went to secondary school in Ghana. So mm-hmm. primary school, secondary school in Ghana, and then I got the opportunity to go outside Ghana. And uh, so I did my sixth, the equivalent of sixth form at uh, United World College of the Atlantic in the UK, in Wales. From there, I went to the US and I went to University of Pennsylvania where I went to the department, uh, bioengineering department. And that's why I was trained. I actually got uh, my three degrees all from the same place. After that, I did a postdoc at Rutgers University uh, in New Jersey, also in the US, before I joined the uh, University of Ghana in 2001. So um, my background and training is in bioengineering, bioengineering, first degree, um, then my master's, and then also a PhD in bioengineering with a specialization in tissue engineering and biomaterials. As a tissue engineer, what uh, the tissue engineer seeks to do is basically to replace body parts. Mm. And it's not enough to replace with a material like a synthetic material biomaterials will help you to do that but if you're a tissue engineer your objective is to actually replace so that after a while after the healing has taken place you don't even see a difference between the damaged um the original tissue and the replaced tissue right so we are trying to produce biological tissues um using the resources available to us so that's what the tissue engineer seeks to do. A, a biomaterials engineer may replace, let's say, um, bone with a piece of metal. The mm-hmm. tissue engineer will try to actually grow bone itself to replace damaged bone. That's interesting. And you've been doing that yes. here in Ghana? <laughs> uh, hmm, not so much. Since I came back in 2001, in fact, when I first came back, I didn't even know of any other tissue engineers in Ghana. And so uh, what I have had to do is to adjust my training and then to do some other, uh, to address some other problems in um, medicine using the skills I have and yet not quite the tissue engineering. We haven't gone that far yet in terms of uh, tissue engineering. I have been training a number of students over the years in tissue engineering, uh, but we don't really have the resources to be able to deliver fully on tissue engineering yet. But we do study biomaterials. And the idea is to eventually get to uh, tissue engineering. So I've been doing other things. In now let's to talk that. about the other things that you've been doing. So I found myself reading the Legon uh, University of Ghana research report. Cool. And whilst I was going through, I, I found your name and, and, and the names of your team members. And it was about you working on so many different things. And all the things that caught my attention really was a device that is used for diagnostics that is controlled with a phone. Um, another one was a Bluetooth-based wireless digital stethoscope with mobile integration and all those things. Tell me about the work you've done so far and how these 
could help us deliver better healthcare uh, for Ghanaians and, and, and for the world? All right. So, um, as I have already mentioned, I joined the University of Ghana in 2001. At the time, there was no bioengineering, no biomedical engineering. In fact, there was no engineering at the time. Uh, but since then, we have made a lot of progress. So the first batch of students joined us in 2004, and they graduated in 2008. In order for an engineering student to graduate, they must do a final year project. So in my department, we started these projects basically in 2008 when our students got to final year and started working on these projects. So every year I get a batch of students and we decide together what it is they are going to work on. So the things I'm going to share with you are mostly student projects that have evolved over the years. Yeah, so much of my work revolves around maternal mortality. It's a major theme in the things that I do. So you know that, uh, unfortunately, in Ghana here, if a woman gets pregnant and it's time to deliver, fraught with all kinds of problems. So whenever there's a problem, of course, and this is a problem in medicine, um, engineers come in, right? So mm -hmm. usually what would happen is uh, uh, patients will bleed to death. And I'm sure you've heard about uh, postpartum hemorrhage. After yeah. the women um, have the babies, they bleed to death. And so we've had a whole lot of projects that have centered around uh, postpartum hemorrhage. So I have a project, for example, um, a couple of years ago, a pair of students looked at how they can measure blood loss because postpartum hemorrhage uh, is said to have taken place when the woman has, is, has lost a certain amount of blood, but it's very difficult for the medical professionals to see how much blood the woman has actually lost. So these uh, students came up with a way of measuring, actually quantifying how much blood the patient has lost so that they, the, um, the doctors can actually attend to the patient in good time. Um, we also have um, students who have been working on... Um, so, for example, another, another group of students worked on developing a massager. So, according to the World Health Organization, after the woman has given birth, they should be massaging, the, the, the uterus should be massaged so that it will gain its um, tension. It will actually, you know, it's a muscle, it must contract. It's when yeah. it doesn't contract that the woman bleeds. So, there's massaging required. But just look at our hospitals. We don't have enough healthcare workers there. So, you have a whole lot of women in a ward with maybe one or two nurses. They don't have time to be massaging everyone. So they usually tell the women to massage themselves. But they are too tired after giving birth to be massaging their uterus. And nobody trains them anyway. So uh, another group of students developed a, a, a device to massage, automatically massage the, the, the women after they've given birth. And all of this is to help stop uh, the po uh, potential of getting this PPH, postpartum hemorrhage. Uh, more recently, this year, I have had a group of students working on a simulator. Many of the uh, medical schools, they don't have the required resources, the mannequins or whatever it is that are needed, the simulators that are needed to train the students, or even some healthcare professionals on how to manage when a woman is bleeding. Mm -hmm. So the simulator is a way of getting our students, uh, medical students and professionals also trained in order to be able to deal with these situations. So that's a very recent project. Then there are other interventions. A lot of the time, the women die because they are not attended to. If the woman starts bleeding heavily and gets into the postpartum hemorrhage stage, with, if you don't do anything, within 15 minutes, they'll be dead. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the interventions we have also looked at have had to do with ways of getting um, these women attended to as quickly as possible. So there was a group of students that also worked on a blood warmer. 
right? So usually if the patient needs to be taken into surgery quickly, and we are now using all kinds of, we found out, by the way, my students go to Kolebu and other hospitals to find out what they do. And uh, <laughs> sometimes the methods used don't help. So if you need to warm blood, the blood comes from a freezer, from the blood bank. And you need to be able to warm it quickly to body temperature before it can be transfused. And yet we don't have the necessary equipment to do so. So this group of students designed a blood warming machine so that the blood can be quickly warmed safely without destroying it and can be transfused. We've even had uh, students working on uh, blood clotting, another device to test for blood clotting. So when the women are getting to the hospital, uh, the surgical suite, Mm -hmm. and the surgery is about to take place, the doctors need to know as quickly as possible if this patient is going to bleed easily or if the patient um, is a normal, you know, normal bleeding time, then they, they then decide how they are going to perform the surgery. Uh, there's a way of checking, but it's a very long process. And so sometimes the doctors will have to send a lab sample out if it's an emergency. By the time the results come, you know what our labs look like, right? Yeah. So by the time the results come, will already be dead. So this group of students also designed a, a device to measure how long it takes for a patient's blood to clot. That wow. way they can quickly do this and it's automated. So this done within 15 minutes, less than 15 minutes, they already know the answer. And, and then the, the uh, patient can be saved because uh, the surgery can be done quickly. Before you give me more, let's go through the ones <laughs> you've shared already. So okay. your students that you've, you've supervised over the years, they've worked on um, devices that can help us to measure blood loss in pregnant women to prevent yes. maternal mortality. Yes. They've worked on a massager that will help mm -hmm. um, um, healthcare givers to ensure that they help um, women restore their uterus, right? Yes, the contraction worked, of the uterus after childbirth. Yes, they've worked on a blood warmer because um, from conversations I've had with friends in the healthcare industry, they've told me that mm -hmm. sometimes they have to put the blood um, in the sun for it yes. to warm <laughs> to the right temperature before they do the transfusion. So you went on a blood yes, warmer. That's yes, and, we want to stop such things by having a device for doing that. <laughs> And you also worked on a blood clot tester. Yes. All these devices, the four that you've mentioned mm -hmm. so far, did you mm -hmm. have prototypes that you tested that worked? Yes. Okay, so let me tell you what happened. So the students first go off and find the problems, right? So mm -hmm. the, usually they, you find them during the holiday, uh, their third year during the holidays, wandering around the hospitals, following doctors and so on. At least the students that work with me, that's what I have them do. Yeah. So they identify these problems. So for example, the people that did the blood warmer, yes, they saw uh, blood bags being left in the sun to, to, to warm and they were not happy. They felt that was a problem, right? Okay, so when they come back, they have one year, one academic year to work on this project. So when they come back, I work very closely with my students. We sit down, we define the scope of the problem, we identify the problem, we make sure we understand the problem very well, that we don't have solutions that are already existing. So if, for example, we have a solution that can easily be acquired, there's no need for a student to spend one year working on this, right? Mm -hmm. So we make sure that it's a real problem and something that can uh, help. Then they go through the engineering design process. I teach engineering design also. So we go through a formal process 
until we come up with a solution. And the solution is in the form usually of a prototype because you have to demonstrate, our students are required to demonstrate the proof of concept. That means they have to show that the problem they have identified can actually be solved and can be solved by the intervention they are presenting. And so they have to present a prototype. So yes, they do present prototypes. And uh, unfortunately, the problems begin once they have the prototype and have gone off and graduated. <laughs> <laughs> this 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 is interesting and sad at the same time because from from your description, the prototypes must work before these students will end their degrees, right? Exactly. So they have one one piece. The prototype is the first full version of the solution, mm -hmm. right? So they have they produce one for me, which they present in order to graduate. And if they've done a good job, they will get the A from me. <laughs> and then after that, they usually go off. Of course, they have to graduate and go and do national service. And some of them go to graduate school afterwards. Some of them find jobs. And then they leave the prototype with me and they sit in my office. Wow. So, Doc, you mean you work with your students to produce these smart devices and solutions and they just sit in your office? Yes, that's, that's the issue because the fact that you have a, a, a working solution doesn't mean that it's ready to be deployed, right? Mm -hmm. Usually you need to find out a way of manufacturing the thing at scale in a cost-effective way. And that process usually does not take place in the university setting because remember I said for our students, we just need them to show proof of concept that the yeah. problem they identified can be solved using the skills they have. Mm. So once they've done that, there's no requirement for them to continue with this project. And many of them, like I said, go off. I myself, am a, I'm an academic. I am, um, <laughs> I, am, I am very much interested in the initial stages. You know, it's very exciting for me to see a problem and then to work through a problem and get a solution. But I'm not a business person. Yeah. So what happens then is uh, the next stage, which is to bring in the business people, uh, make sure you have your business plan and set up a company to deploy your solution. That has not happened yet. Doc, before we talk about the business, let's talk about some of the other things you've done. There was one I saw in the University of Ghana Research Report, which is a uterine monitoring device that could be controlled remotely that can help us um, uh, monitor babies in the wombs of their, of their mothers and that can help us to provide proper maternal care. What really is that device about and how does it work? Yes, this is another very interesting project. Uh, the uterine contraction monitoring device uh, was uh, developed by one of my students, Derek Degbujri. Yes, I always mispronounce his last name. Anyway, so again, this was one, one of the projects that was identified at the maternity uh, ward of Kolebu Teaching Hospital. Uh, he basically he saw that there were a lot of a lot of times you would have a lot of these pregnant women who have come in to give birth, and the nurses there are very few of them, two or three to a whole ward of about thirty women, and there's no way. In fact, the the best practice is to monitor their contractions as they are about the late stage of labor is mm -hmm. characterized by contractions, periodic contractions. They are supposed to be monitored regularly. What the nurses do is they go and stand next to the pregnant woman, they look at a clock, put their hand on the, on the fundus, the, the belly, and then they monitor the contractions that way. Please, if you have two nurses to 30 women, how many women can be monitored? And if this is not done, 
you can actually have emergencies that lead to the death preterm labor. The, the baby is born preterm yeah. or there may be other complications and each complication is a risk, a risk to the life of the baby and a risk to the life of the mother. Yeah. So monitoring is extremely important, but unfortunately, there are settings we can't do that. So the idea was to come up with a device that can independently monitor so that if you have this device deployed, the nurses can now take their time and go just check the monitoring later on. They don't need to be they need they don't need to spend 30 minutes standing by one patient when others are calling them. You see. So that the, that was the first stage. The first stage of this uh, project was to come up with that device. Uh, the next stage, in fact, the next stage, this semester or this past, this academic year that we are ending, we had another group of students in the, I, I work with a colleague, uh, Dr. Godfrey Mills and the Department of Computer Engineering. We are actually trying to use AI, artificial intelligence, to make the monitoring even more, uh, even more effective mm -hmm. so that the, you know, the data that we collect with this device, we can analyze using um, AI to check to make sure that the contractions are within the normal range. They sense an alert to the nursing officials or the doctors if anything is, uh, is, is not right so that um, they can attend to the patients. I, I'll come back and ask you how we can get all these devices working, but I want you to tell us more about um, the things you've done. Now, Doc, you worked on a wireless stethoscope. Yes, that's another very exciting project. That's probably one of the best known projects that we have. Again, I worked with my colleague, Dr. Godfrey Mills from the Department of Computer Engineering on this project. So um, this actually, it's also very relevant now, even in the times of COVID-19. So we were thinking about something like the, during the time of Ebola, right? It's all well and good to have a stethoscope for the doctor to get close to the patient to go and take the, the uh, signs, the vital signs, right? Mm -hmm. But what if the patient is in isolation and it's dangerous for the doctor even to approach? Mm -hmm. So the idea is this, that if you can eliminate that connecting tube between the earpiece and then the chest piece, then the doctor can be even in a different room they remotely monitor the patient's signals, right? Mm -hmm. By, so we developed, okay, what we did was to have a chest piece, which we have developed with all the electronics, and then we have a Bluetooth linkage between that chest piece and a, a mobile device. So your mobile phone, we have an app. So the signals, all you have to do is to ask the patient to place the, the, um, the, the chest piece and then you can monitor the signals in a different place. So you don't even need to get that close to the patient. Okay. So wow. that was the idea behind the wireless uh, stethoscope. What is even interesting about this is that you can actually broadcast. So, so normally, how do our doctors, our, um, our medical students, how do they learn how to take these uh, <laughs> heartbeat and so on, measurements using their stethoscope? Each, each uh, student will come with their own stethoscope, place it on the patient, and then the, the, uh, um, the professor or lecturer will also have their own. What if the signal has changed, mm -hmm. right? So this way, you can just have one chest piece. The sound can be broadcast to all the students they are training at the same time. It's the same signal then, right? So that's another advantage. So it's also, it also has a purpose for teaching. And you yes. also do not inconvenience the patient you are, you are using for the teaching exercise. Exactly. Exactly. You don't need to have a whole lot of people crowded around one patient to come and hear their, their heart sounds. 
This is really interesting. Yeah. There, there was one thing I saw which blew my mind. Cassava fiber for potential wound <laughs> dressing application. For cassava, I know it's used for garlic, yeah. for starch, and for fufu. <laughs> and sometimes I'm pissing. That's because you are, yeah, you are an Accra boy. You don't go to farm, so you don't know. <laughs> so actually, this <laughs> this is a very another interesting project. I I was speaking to my mother, right, and she said mm-hmm. in the past, when many years ago, she's now in her seventies, mid seventies. So they used to go to farm. If somebody gets injured, they get a cut on the farm. They would chew a bit of the cassava and use it as some kind of agent, hemostatic agent, to stop the bleeding and then to help in the healing. Right? They would chew it and then put it on the wound. Mm-hmm. So obviously, cassava, the cassava has been known to be used for things like that. This indigenous knowledge, but we had not really studied cassava for these purposes. So, being a biomaterials uh, engineer, interested in materials for use in all sorts of things, I had uh, over the years I've had students look at cassava, the fibers. We've also looked at starch in some cases, but mainly for me, the interest has been in the fiber because that's the wasted part. The starch we extract, and some years ago we had the starch factory, right? So mm-hmm. they will extract the starch and then the bagasse, mm-hmm. the fibers that are left, they are left to waste. It's a nuisance, they smell, and all kinds of, you mean getting rid of it is a problem. Yeah. So if that's the case, uh, why shouldn't we find a way of harnessing those um, fibers? for mm-hmm. use in a, a certain way. So the idea was for, but then we didn't know much about, about these uh, fibers. In mm-hmm. fact, if you looked in the literature, nobody had been studying the fibers for their properties. So what I have been doing over the years is to get my students to study these fibers and so that when we know the properties, then we can think of what ways we can use them for, uh, for the various applications. And that's what we've been doing. And so the idea for that group of students was to look at properties that are relevant to wound healing right and the wound dressings so it has to be able to absorb moisture if you are going to put it on the wound it must be able to absorb moisture so that the wound can stay dry so they measured for example um, how much uh, fluid the the fibers can absorb and and all kinds of interesting things so (laughs) so so that that is the project with the cassava fibers i'm 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 I'm, I'm looking at a lot of the other things that you've done as well and honestly if we are to Mm -hmm. go through all the research work you've done with your students, we, we, I'm not sure we can exhaust them in this conversation that we've had. What is preventing us from developing these devices and these projects further to give us value? The, the thing is, you know, our students, these are engineering students, the mm-hmm. ones who work with me on these projects, they're engineering students. For a very long time in Ghana here, if, if you go to university, the purpose is to get a degree and then go off and work. Right, so that is the attitude most of the students come with. In fact, sometimes I see students who are in a hurry to just get out to go and find that job. So first thing will be a change in attitude that it is actually possible to make a living developing some of these products. If our students can really believe that, then maybe we'll have more students taking their projects seriously and wanting to continue to work on them. Okay, because every time a student leaves me a prototype, if I want to continue this work, I need to recruit a new batch of students or volunteers to be able to move uh, the projects forward, to continue working on the projects. And it has not been easy. You know, there's a learning curve. If you were not the first one to develop it, you have to learn what has been done in order to add your, your, uh, your work onto that, right? So it's been very, very difficult to maintain uh, the momentum once we get going. It's, very, it's been very hard to do that. So that is one of the challenges. 
The next challenge is also the environment in which we live. Uh, even if somebody, a student, decides that they want to move their project forward, if they go to the hospitals now, they see that the hospitals themselves are not really interested in looking at local products. They, either they don't even know about us or they don't think we are capable. And so they are much more interested in importing solutions from elsewhere. Mm -hmm. The solutions may not have been developed for our own use because uh, they were developed for a different environment. Sometimes some of these uh, medical devices, they have so many features which are not relevant to our situation. Yeah. Next is uh, fundraising and funding. These are expensive things to do. And so we need, we need understanding of these things. We need investors to come in, identify some of these projects in order to be able to move them forward. Many of these projects also were developed under the University of Ghana, right? So it's a, these are University of Ghana um, intellectual property, if I were to say so. Mm -hmm. The university itself, many, you know, when we first started engineering at Legon, there was no office for technology transfer. And our processes for licensing out ideas were not in place. In fact, we are now in the process of fine-tuning these. On occasion, we have had people even approach, but our processes have been so cumbersome and long. We are now learning how to work with investors <laughs> to fund projects like this. And investors get frustrated with us when the processes are long. They have to do all kinds of uh, bureaucratic uh, <laughs> activities before they will even be allowed to see what projects we have and the details of the project, right? Yeah. Uh -huh. So these are all challenges that we have uh, when it comes to uh, deploying these uh, products. And I myself, you know, I'm an academic at heart, to be honest. I don't have a single company to my name. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am an academic. First of all, uh, the way in which our academics are evaluated is not based on the ability to produce these prototypes. Mm. My evaluation is based on what I publish. In fact, there are many other projects which we haven't even gone to. You have looked at the ones that are, have been published and so are available for you to read. But um, my promotion is dependent on my ability to publish the work, not by my ability to solve problems. <laughs> so, 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 so that's a problem that we need to solve. So the system... Must you know, be reviewed. I know that statement will be controversial. <laughs> I know my statement just now will be controversial. I will be, I'll get into trouble with some people. <laughs> but that's an honest, that's an honest situation. And mm. uh, so, for example, if uh, some of these uh, projects, they really should be patented. They should have intellectual property rights. While you are seeking intellectual property rights, you cannot publish. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. if I sit around, because the processes are long, Right. If I sit around not publishing them and moving on to something else I can publish, um, I will never get promoted. Mm. And so the priorities are different. The priorities are, are, are different. Also. And I, I also saw that a lot of the projects that um, researchers in Ghana work on are projects that are funded by external institutions. We hardly get enough funding from local sources. Uh, yes, actually, I, I think we need to nurture uh, our, our investors, you know, to find uh, investors who may be interested in projects like this. Right now, I know there are some investors that invest in other sectors, especially agric and so on. But uh, this is something new to us. Like I said, uh, biomedical engineering in Ghana, it's not that old. Actually, the first uh, program was the University of Ghana program which started in 2004 with students, you know. We started actually with 2003, and then the students arrived in 2004, and it's the first program. So we don't have a history 
of producing um, these uh, solutions and putting them through a commercial process so that when an investor comes in, they are confident that we are capable of doing it. We are learning along the way. So we need investors who are able to uh, take this kind of risk and help us to, to move forward. We also need to get uh, funding, funding, you know, like uh, uh, allocated funds for development work, research and development, so that I don't have to go and partner with somebody elsewhere before I can get funding for any of these projects. We should be able to see the value in some of these things we are doing. And the more we do them, the better we get. And so I, I think, and our markets, by the way, are not just Ghana here. So these products we have, there are similar problems in our neighboring countries. Many of the countries in Africa face the same kind of challenges that we face. So if we have a solution like this here in Ghana, we have the potential to market them all over the continent and sometimes even outside the continent. So it should not be seen that these are small projects we are doing and there's no real potential. So I think the investors need to know that it's possible for us to do this, but they need to be patient with us to be able to build up our capacity. This is the City Business Festival. My guest is Dr. Elsie Effa Kaufman, and we are talking about some of the breakthroughs in medical engineering, biomedical engineering that she's led her teams, her students to work on. And as we talk, I realize that we have a lot of solutions looking for problems that are on shelves that are sitting on the decks at the various universities. And we really need to have a conversation, a national conversation about how we are going to fund research, innovation, invention, how we are, we, we, we are going to help our researchers and our inventors skill so that they can produce a lot of mass produce the prototypes that are sitting on their decks to give us value. Now, as COVID-19 continues globally, a lot of countries are looking at protecting what they have. A lot of countries are closing up. Help is not coming from anywhere, and you must find our own solutions to our problems. Are we going to sit back and continue importing everything we need, or are we rather going to resource our scientists, our research institutions, researchers, and inventors to create the solutions for us? That's a question I want every Ghanaian to think about. That's a question I want people at the policy level to think about. Is this how we are going to develop Ghana beyond aid? Or we have other thoughts or other ideas to develop Ghana. Now, Doc, I'd like to ask you for your thoughts. In the short term, medium term, long term, how do we solve this problem? Yes, so in the short term, and I think we are doing some of these already, but we can do better. Uh, if somebody goes to engineering school, they need to be empowered to think that they can come up with tangible solutions to problems. It is not sufficient to go sit in class for four years, get a certificate, and you have no confidence in yourself to come up with a tangible solution to a problem. It's unacceptable. It's simply unacceptable because a lot of our human resource, our human potential is going to waste in some engineering uh, <laughs> engineering schools and engineering classrooms because the students are simply not being challenged to behave like engineers. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's, that's a, a, a short term thing uh, to change our attitude to the training of the, the people who are going to be the innovators and to respect them to be able to come up with solutions, the real solutions to real life problems. So that involves a change in the way in which we teach them and a, a, and, and a, willingness, a willingness 
to use our own case studies and a willingness to direct our students to be problem solvers, not just acquiring uh, certificates. That is one thing. Then, um, yes, so maybe division of labor, division of labor in terms of, well, in terms of uh, putting together teams, right? Multidisciplinary teams to solve some of these problems so that it's not up to the engineer alone. The innovator who comes up with the invention now has to switch and then look around, jumping around to try to find partners in business to be able to develop the solution. So our ability to work together across disciplines to be able to solve a problem, you know, a realistic problem, uh, that also is lacking. So we need to be able to work together. Then again, uh, setting up a research fund. This one is uh, short to medium term. Set up a research fund. You know, a lot of challenges have gone out these days and we are all very familiar with even the COVID-19 challenges, innovation challenges that have been going on. It has to be a regular thing for us. So mm -hmm. if we have a problem, let's set it up as a challenge. Let's encourage people, creative people to come up with solutions to these challenges, provide the funding necessary for them to be able to come up with the solutions and then have the teams in place to scale these solutions. These are some of the things I can think of right away. So you are the president of the Ghana Society of Biomedical Engineers. Tell me about it and the work that you've been doing so far. Yes, so this is a professional association. And so when the, the COVID-19 came up and there was a, a huge a cry for personal protective gear and equipment, it basically fell into our lives because this is a problem in healthcare. And so what we did was to organize ourselves. I have been leading some teams to work on various projects in order to find ways of locally producing uh, some of these PPE. Uh, our first product, so we have several teams going. We have about five teams going at the moment. And the first uh, team to come up with a product was actually the, the team that worked on the face shields. So it's possible. I mean, these are professionals, okay? So some of them are past, past my, some of my past students. Uh, these are also uh, people in, in the industry, you know, in biomedical engineering, they are clinical engineers. Some are working for themselves, but they volunteer their time and their expertise to come up with these products just to help us during this time of emergency. What we have discovered in this effort is that our preparedness for manufacturing is also a problem. So, for example, the face shields, we have some parts of it that are 3D printed. We don't have enough 3D printers. And so what happens is it takes a very long time to be able to produce the numbers that we need. We can do more, but unfortunately, we don't have the resources to do so. And so, um, again, another maybe a long-term plan to make these things possible. It's possible for us to produce everything locally, but we must have the manufacturing capacity. We must have the manufacturing capacity to be able to do some of these things. Yes. So uh, the environment should be you should be set up in a way that we should be self-reliant because when the supply chains are not going as they should, it becomes a problem. Mm -hmm. And we've seen that it's become very clear during this time of COVID-19. Interesting. And I'd like to say congratulations to you on the job that you, you are doing and the job you've done so far. But the final question before I let you go, you've, you've been the quiz mistress for the National Science and Maths Quiz for quite some time now. Um, what would you say about science education uh, is it getting better in the country? Uh, it's actually, I think it's, imp it's improving. But you have to note that we get the best and the brightest on the show, right? Mm -hmm. 
Uh-huh. So if you compare the kinds of questions they were answering at the beginning of the show, this is 1993, 1994, and you compare them to the kinds of questions we ask, <laughs> compare that to 2019, you will see a huge difference. And yet these students are able to answer these questions. That means something is improving, right? Yeah. And in addition to that, we have more and more students participating. In the beginning, it was only a few schools that participated in the quiz program. Now, it's a national, it's a, it has a, a real national flair to it. So all regions are involved, all districts, as long as you're a senior high school that wants to participate, uh, you are capable of participating. And there are many more students who get a chance to participate. So I think the general level in terms of um, the technical uh, capacity of the students, that is, has improved over the years significantly. And we, we hear a lot of stories of impact from that direction. Um, there have been some issues that have come up about uh, um, being practical enough and so on and so forth. Well, there's a place for everything. A quiz program cannot give you everything you need. Mm -hmm. So the teachers also have to do their part in the classrooms to make the education they are giving a lot more attractive to the students, right? Yeah. Uh, we need to have enough facilities. And science is not like uh, other subjects where you can have a whole auditorium full of people and just use a microphone. You actually need equipment that the students need in order to do experiments, practical things. So we also need the resources. And then the training for the teachers themselves also. We need teachers who are well-trained and ready to deploy this kind of education. So. Yes, we are doing okay, uh, but we can do a whole lot better. We can do a whole lot better. There's still a lot of root learning going on, um, but we, we, we do what we can to, to uh, make things a little more different and, and more relevant. It's been great talking to you, Dr. Elsie Efa Kaufman, um, biomedical engineer, lecturer at the University of Ghana, president of the Biomedical Society of Ghana, Quiz Mistress of the National Science and Mass Quiz. It's been awesome talking to you, learning about all the work that um, you've done, the work that you continue to do. And I pray that our scientists, our researchers, our engineers, our inventors will get the right support they need to be competitive globally. And in this sense, to also have their products being mass produced and being used to create wealth for them for their institutions, and for our nation. My name is Kojo Akoto Boateng. This has been the City Business Festival. This week we are looking at innovation in Ghana. And the City Business Festival is sponsored by APSA Bank Ghana Limited with the support of GIPC. Thank you for listening.